Okay, and now we're recording. Welcome everyone to the CTSC webinar for March 27, 2017. I'm your host, Jeanette Dopheide. CTSC is the NSF Cybersecurity Center for Excellence, and these webinars are part of its mission to deliver high-quality, actionable guidance regarding cybersecurity to the NSF community. More information about CTSC can be found at trustedci.org. Today's topic is SDN and IAM integration at Duke University, presented by Charlie Nafel and Richard Beaver. Charlie is Senior Technical Director at the Office of Information Technology, and Richard is CISO at Duke University. Before we begin, I have a few items to note. First, this presentation is being recorded. Second, participants are welcome to ask questions during the session using the chat box uh, provided, and I just typed where you'd want to uh, enter your questions. And we will also take uh, questions at the end of the presentation. Okay, having said all that, I will hand the microphone over to Charlie and Richard. Charlie and Richard, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, so today we're going to talk to you a little bit about some of the, uh, the projects that we've had over the last several years, starting off with our protected uh, research and data network and then moving into how we've made use of uh, software-defined networking as well as identity management and integration and to help improve the, the processes for internal as well as outside collaborators. Uh, so starting off with the protected network, really one of the interesting things we wanted to show you was prior to 2012, it, it was like many of probably your uh, institutions where you had a wide variety of, um, let's see, somebody's saying choppy audio. I can see, hear you clearly. Um, Randall, Randall, um, you might want to uh, exit the session and re-enter the room. Uh, Simon, likewise. Okay. All right, we'll give it just a couple of seconds and then I'll, I'll, we'll start back. Okay. All right, so prior to 2012, the way research was handled was very much in an ad hoc manner, mainly by departments. And as you can see, it was scattered around a variety of the schools. There was a little bit centrally. There were some in the institutes. And uh, really, the way that we handled sensitive or restricted data was around standalone servers disconnected from the network or just a couple of approved instances. Uh, and most of the sensitive research at the time the, was thought to come from the medical side of the university, so School of Medicine, School of Nursing, or the institutes associated with it. But we found that really wasn't the case, and when we performed risk assessments of the university, what we found is that really there was sensitive research going on in just about every area of campus, uh, especially when you get into social sciences, you find that the data sets, the, the key identifier there is the social security number. So, you know, again, prior to 2012, number one way of dealing with sensitive data, keeping it unplugged from the network. 
And then afterwards, um, or one of the questions we had is, well, fantastic, what if your collaborators were outside of Duke or you had postdocs or researchers in campus that were trying to help you or, or work with the data and analyze it? So that's when we got together. We, we got a core group of people together scattered around campus as well as central IT, and we started looking at how could we build a protected network or a protected enclave within the Duke environment to accommodate this. And really, you know, really super technical diagram here, but our, our core network, we you know, have an internet edge router. We do run through an intrusion prevention system, and then all the routing ha happens on the core. With the protected network, uh, what we did is we created a segmented network, uh, or a VRF, uh, and we have it running through a firewall, and then we put logically segmented our virtual storage as well as our virtual servers into that network. So after that, we, after an initial pilot of the effort, what we found is that researchers didn't just like coming in via VPN, they also like to be able to SSH or in some cases remote desktop in. And so we added those remote access options into the mix. We also, at the time, we were introducing Duo for multi-factor on campus and we added that as part of the login process. So not only did you have to come in you know, into log into the protected network um, via your username and password, but we required multi-factor. We also added in some additional features there around log monitoring with Splunk. We added in encryption in an ad hoc manner uh, when needed for compliance, and we added authorization via grouper so we could control what groups got to see what virtual machines or storage segments. And then in partnership with SSRI, um, this one, SSRI. Yeah, SSRI is the Social Science Research Institute on campus, and they really were at the forefront of looking at how to protect the social science data that we're using um, social security numbers as keys. And we built an enclave within the environment specific to SSRI who then added in the administrative processes that are necessary with a lot of the regulated data that we were using. Lastly, with our faculty and researchers, we deployed a number of tools to their benefit. For example, LastPass uh, with, um, uh, for password storage, again, do it with multi-factor and managed workstations. I think one thing that's important to note is that the um, multi-factor uh, happens for, for logins through the, the gateways or onto the SSH jump box that we're using to, for access uh, through SSH into the environment. Yeah. Okay. So with this, what we found, and, and again, this goes back to the SSRI piece, is that partnerships really do matter. What we found is that, sure, you have a couple of IT folks that could get together and develop a solution, but you have to have buy-in from leadership. They have to acknowledge that, you know what, we do have sensitive data that has to be protected, and we do need to spend cycles centrally to, um, to work this out. One of the key things that's been, that has helped us has been the relationship between our CIO and our Vice Provost of Research and really having a singular vision of embracing protected research here on campus. You have to have invested bodies. Uh, so with SSRI, it's not just the IT piece. What we often like to say is that central IT here is very good at infrastructure projects, 
but maybe not quite as hands-on as we would like to be or would need to be with the research community. And that's where having a good partnership with groups like SSRI has helped bridge that particular gap. Um, from an OIT perspective, we've had to really look and think about how we break down internal silos because when you're looking at developing a service like the Protected Network, it's cross-functional and crosses a number of disciplines in turn, internally to IT. And so you have to have vested interest from the groups and working together on that. And then from a security perspective, what we generally see is that security has become more of an enabler in this process as opposed to being an inhibitor. And really providing guidance along policy and risk, but then also helping to find, working with OIT and the researchers, find ways to come up with secure solutions to meet the needs of the community. Uh, SSRI's role, uh, we mentioned this briefly, but it really starts with the grant writing proposals and what we've seen are the grants coming out of SSRI or researchers that are working with SSRI are already dealing with the security and, and data protection issues up front. So rather than getting to the point of approving a, a grant, uh, you know, at the, right before they're ready to implement and start working on it, that work is happening much farther ahead, and that helps us to, to make sure that we've got everything we need from a data security perspective. Um, it has facilitated collaboration. We have seen more researchers that are kind of cross-functional working together on projects. Um, from an honest broker perspective, providing guidance in terms of making sure that data is looked at before taken out of the environment and used for publication really providing that first level technical and administrative support to the researchers when they have questions about, can I do this? Can I have this application? How do I make this work? And that has been invaluable. So just to you know, kind of close that part of it out with the support model, OIT, the way we see that has been the technical ownership of the infrastructure. It really has been providing the guts of, of the service. So between our network and the storage and virtual machines, that is driven out of OIT. From an ITSO or IT security office perspective, we see a lot of the monitoring happening, obviously incident response, consulting on architecture design, SSRI providing that interface to the research community. And then not to you know, forget about this, the researcher plays a part in this as well. We often say that security is a shared responsibility and really we're looking for researchers to, to drive that, A, the innovation of what is needed, but then also participating in keeping their data secure. So I'm going to talk next. This is uh, Charlie, if anybody cares about the differences between Richard and Charlie here, um, <laughs> about some of the automation and virtualization uh, work that we've done to support this. And, and I will say from day one, the services that we are providing in this environment are fully virtualized, and we also have virtualized our research computing infrastructure, which gives us the flexibility to bring something like a two terabyte machine to bear inside of the protected network just as easily as we can do inside of our normal, uh, normal environment. Um, so just uh, sort of soup of the, um, the work that we've done, we started with something called Clockworks, which was our first application um, an API to provision VM resources, which is now the, the core element of our ability to quickly respond to the request from researchers. So we have a Ruby on Rails app for Clockworks, and therefore all of the APIs 
uh, that come with that that we can then use to provision. So when we're building out new VMs in our research computing infrastructure, um, we use the APIs to just provision, say, 100 large VMs into that environment when we've added hardware to it or migrate things or when we want to do an upgrade between, say, RHEL 6 and RHEL 7. Uh, another example of an app is we did Locksmith, which was the same sort of thing to provision SSL certificates. So we allow uh, researchers, faculty, and IT um, professionals on the campus side to go in and get their own uh, SSL cert through Komodo uh, and um, you know, install it, and then we manage the uh, expirations and, and re-ups of those. And then another app, which will become more important later, is Switchboard, which is our web app to provision uh, SDN paths or more uh, directly the endpoints that are allowed to communicate. So uh, when we talk about that, essentially you can think of it as a as researcher X owns machine X um, and machine Y and wants to have a fast path between them, and they can do that. Or researcher X wants to to set up a fast path to some centrally managed service, and we can we can do all of those sorts of things there. Uh, we also have the ability for researchers to go in directly and manage uh, their own services. They can provision VMs, they can provision storage, uh, and they can provision and manage uh, membership in grouper, uh, groups through a simplified image, uh, a simplified method. Uh, students have access through VM Manage to uh, off-the-shelf, very simple, very, very fast provision uh, under five seconds. Uh, stacks of machines and Docker containers. Uh, this started out as the place that we wanted to give students access to VMs that were that had public um, interfaces um, and had the ability to say do uh, software development um, themselves rather than in the cloud or um, on servers under their bed. Uh, so we've done that, and now we have the ability to do Docker containers with our studio and other sorts of services. Um, um, directly, and we have, I think, right now somewhere around 800 to 900 uh, containers and VMs running inside of that environment. And then a little bit later, we'll get to a description of Pro Console, uh, where we can do um, Windows or Linux, uh, real Windows for uh, Pro Console, but we can also do Linux via web browser, uh, Windows, MATLAB, Mathematic, all of those sorts of services. Uh, in a fairly scalable way that uh, does uh, bypass some of the past the hash uh, concerns and provide some um, additional security layers on top of that. Yeah, one of the nice things about you know, while well, Charlie's switching over to the next slide, one of the nice things about this process has been the protected network and the PRDN have been become brands, known brands to faculty and researchers, and there's a recognition from the tools that are, have been developed as well as the, the environment, there's a recognition that this is an option for them when they're dealing with protected research. Uh, and to answer the question on, uh, that came through, um, at the end I'll give you the um, GitHub URLs for these most of these projects so that we are getting them out there and we'd love to see them um, expanded and the like. Clockworks isn't yet in that space, but uh, Switchboard is and I think ProConsole is as well. Yeah. Um, so we've got some work around those and are happy to share. Uh, this is just a, the Clockworks uh, demo screen screenshot of what you can do to provision those. Um, we've got back-end work that does this for uh, VMs inside of VMware, and we've also done some shim work to make it work for um, Azure.
and a little bit inside of container space uh, provisioning for AWS as well. Um, we are uh, actively doing containers for research, and we need to be able to provide uh, tools that provide uh, reproducible analysis so that we are working through the processes now of building scripted builds for containers, deployments into these protected environments uh, with you know, well-defined payloads, checksums, uh, and signatures and the like uh, that can be easily deployed by the researchers and allows for quicker development. Uh, we can move workloads around so we can have a workload that's developed in a non-protected environment and then moved into the protected uh, environment uh, for those sorts of things. Uh, and then we have uh, lots of customization for, uh, for shared environments. Uh, Richard, you want to talk about the console real quick? Sure. So with the, the zero install consoles, when we first started the protected network and, and everything we described here, it's, it's been iterative. We, we never, we, I don't think we've ever been fully satisfied in anything uh, being perfect. So we, we are constantly iterating. Uh, some of that's driven by IT. Some of it's been driven by researchers. Uh, the zero install consoles are a perfect example of this. VPN access is fantastic if you're talking about remote access, but we also know that VPNs are inhibitors in terms of speed as well as um, um, you know, really being true remote access gateways for, for researchers. And, so, and, and, and yep. uh, VPNs are also not able to be easily set up to be shared among multi, multiple institutions. And we'll get to the importance of that in a little while. Yeah. So beyond that, that's why we introduced SSH and RDP and zero install consoles are taking that a step further. Imagine instead of starting up a remote desktop uh, protocol client on your machine, imagine if you just went to the site via browser, much like a Qualtrics, I'm sorry, not Qualtrics, Citrix or, or uh, other VDI solution might do. And from there, you get your full feature desktop in the browser and then you're able to manipulate the operating system within it. And that's really the concept behind the zero install console. Uh, one of the things that we'll, we'll sort of, I hope, get enough time to mention is that uh, one of the reasons that we really like the web-based access to this is because we can ship it. And once we ship it, we can do other sorts of things with uh, Grouper and remote, uh, remote accounts. Uh, here's a screenshot from VM Manage. This is what students can log into, they can get a, a bunch of pre-built stacks, they can get all, uh, all sorts of other services as well. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, research toolkits and, and RAPID. RAPID is the um, acronym that our CIO came up with for Research Accelerating Pre-Configured Individual Dynamic Virtual Machines. So they're <laughs> RAPID VMs, uh, which is, tells us our goal of being able to fully provision a machine uh, for any, anybody uh, we can do. RHEL, Ubuntu, and Windows desktops and Windows servers now, usually somewhere between you know five and thirty minutes, depending on on how big of a, a machine they are. Um, we can also allocate uh, NAS-based storage to those uh, the groups that are provisioned in there and other services as well. There was a question about do we charge researchers for this service? Hmm, that's a good way, that's a good question to ask. We can, we can come back to that a little bit later. Right now we're getting central funding for a lot of this, so we don't have to charge researchers. However, in the VMs inside of the protected network, typically those are charged uh, to, the, to the project as, as part of this, but we are going through some transitions on that. 
Um, Richard, yep. you want to talk through Pro Console? Yeah, so Pro Console is an example of the zero install configuration. The idea behind this was to basically obfuscate logins. So the, the classic example, and this, this is applying it to our Active Directory environment, the classic way of dealing with Active Directory is that you either have several domain administrators that have uh, unique passwords to log into it, uh, you may even limit where they can log into Active Directory uh, from. So you might have a protected workstation they can only access uh, Active Directory from. And then the other piece of it is uh, sometimes you might, you know, make use of a privileged account uh, management system, PAM, uh, similar to CyberArk or, or something of that nature. So we looked at it and said, well, can we build something that would mimic this and provide us some, some security around domain admin accounts? And that's how we came up with Pro Console. So the basic idea today is when you log into Active Directory, you would either straight, you know, via a Windows session, log into Active Directory, in which case we do enforce multi-factor, um, hence the Duo logo there. Or in other cases, you might come in via PowerShell or an MMC snap-in to access Active Directory, in which case there is no two-factor authentication, and therein lies the, the issue, and, and it uh, is vulnerable to pass the hash attack. So, Below that, what we did is we said, well, you know, going back to the zero install idea, if we can create a, a VM that is shipped that you would multi-factor into, then on the back end, we can create a no VNC or, or RDP access to Active Directory. And what we are doing there is part of that process is creating a very long random password for the administrator to use to sign into Active Directory that they never see. So I log in with my DukeNet ID and um, uh, my DukeNet ID and password, and I multi-factor into a VM managed console, and then on the back end the system creates a, a short-term use password, long random password that logs me into Active Directory for the session. And when I'm done, that that account is reset and the password goes away. And that protects us from pass the hash and, and gives us the ability to, um, uh, to to feel more comfortable with the account structure there. The, the hash that might be on the server has been uh, only lived for that session is not usable for any other future logins. Yep. All right, so I'm going to talk a little bit, I mean, sort of what, what Richard just mentioned, but if we think about a remote user um, today, um, because we have a web server in there that the, that remote user can come into a Duke website um, and then going through a um, site chooser, go back to their remote uh, ship IDP and then come back to the local SP which sends us off to the IDP on campus to make some decisions on whether you're in, in uh, the appropriate grouper groups or LDAP lookups or whatever else might happen to be needed and makes the decision ultimately to send you off via uh, Pro Console or one of our VNC-based services uh, to, to get a login. This is really nice because it allows us to uh, use, have users with their, their local credentials instead of having to provide everybody with a Duke account and all of the management uh, overhead that goes with that you know, because typically we see that they are, um, there was a question about um, can I comment on 
Bruce's question, was this on the, Jeanette, was this on the uh, costing? Because I think he did. Oh, okay. Cover. This was about charging researchers yeah. for the service? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so some, in some cases we do, in other cases um, we don't. We, we, if we have time at the end, we can come back, uh, come back to that. Um, but it's really nice to be able to, to allow those remote users to use their, their local credentials, with which they're familiar with. And we actually have now, and I think it's emerging as a standard within the latest release of SHIB for a release of attributes that say whether the user went through an MFA on the far end. So we have the ability to do that. We don't have to set up accounts. We don't have to set up MFA requirements, or we don't have to set up MFA for those remote accounts and, and have all the effort in supporting those. And if they're infrequently used, we find that there's lots and lots of effort around um, supporting those users, which doesn't really add any value for an account that they, they use not as frequently as, as the normal account. So that is one of the, the real core reasons we like using the web-based tools for this so that we can uh, leverage uh, SHIB. We are, we are just starting down the path of uh, the ECP world in, in enabling a broader set of services locally. Um, Richard, you want to talk through some of these? Um, yep. So when we look at it with the federated research, so again, if we looked at the protected network, we have our no VNC uh, via the web. We would have a researcher on site you know, here at Duke using VM Manage to create their, uh, their full virtual machine, and it may have the fully identified data. They may also create a Dockerized uh, Docker container with some of the tools in it and that might be linked to the identified or de-identified data. And then we may just provide access to some batch processing um, where commands can be run by, say, a student, et cetera, against de-identified data. So researcher would come in because he's the PE or she is, or the PIs, they would have full access to the, um, the identified data. Uh, they would have to come in via SHIB with Duo. And then our next one, so there are two, there are two, two questions that came in. The, the first is we are a Slurm shop. So what we've done here is we have a uh, Slurm master uh, inside of the protected network that can be used to run jobs where appropriate uh, behind the scenes. And uh, then identified and de-identified data is whether or not the, the social security number is, is included or whether there have been randomized replacements or whether the data has been run through processes to remove that identifiable data. Yep. Okay. And then internally, too, and through the use of Grouper, we can take internal collaborators or researchers and students, and we can assign them similar levels of access where they get full access to or access to the, uh, the, the fully uh, sensitive data, or in some cases, they only get access to the, uh, the Docker instance or the batch processing tools that allow them to interact with some subset of that data and thus reducing the risk that, that we may have a data exposure. And, and again, all this would be through a single pane of glass. Uh, and then lastly, and this goes back to the, the discussion Charlie was mentioning previous, is this then gives us the ability, because we're civilized, for external researchers at other universities and colleges to use their school's uh, credentials to log in uh, to the, the environment they're returned back to their institution for authentication, and we also can pick up their multi-factor attributes at that point, thus authenticating them in at the same level that we would an on-campus researcher. Uh, the question about does the, the Slurm have the ability to spin up VMs? 
There are abilities to spin up VMs inside of Swarm. We are not yet taking um, as much advantage of those as we would like, uh, but we have plans to add more ability to make those dynamic or that they are um, sort of freeze-dried and ready to go and all that they have to do is to be uh, awoken. Uh, there's also uh, another project which has some NSF funding that we're supporting uh, that Jeff Chase in the computer science department is working on that is uh, builds upon some of these things called SAFE, which is a set, a set of credentials that are um, well documented in, in a structured way and can be presented to uh, remote locations for either trusted third-party computing to be done or for allowing resources to be uh, presented uh, that's uh, a little more batchable and a little more scriptable than, say, uh, shibboleth logins. Okay. So uh, now we'll talk a little bit about what we've actually actually done over the last couple of years with with uh, SDN uh, work um, and why we've implemented an SDN architecture and what's been important uh, about this. So I mean, this is sort of a uh, an everywhere slide. Um, the uh, we have done our primary purpose for SDN through a, through a grant was to provide bypasses for the campus network. At the time we started this in 2013, uh, we had a core that wasn't really capable of dealing with more than a gigabit. Even though we had 10 gigabit uh, pieces on the core, the edges uh, were one gigabit. And then we found as we started to add capacity uh, that we really didn't have uh, the broader capacity to to add it, we had a lot of um, uh, Cisco 6509s and other things which had some uh, limitations in the in the backplanes, and we actually caused at least one, if not two, uh, code blacks at the hospital when we were pushing traffic across the production network because of resource starvation uh, for the phone systems. Uh, so we built this for bypass, which would allow a researcher in the physics department to send their backups or to collaborate with researchers in another department over a network that would bypass the um, IPS at the time was in the middle of the network or the firewalls or the core itself. And uh, just doing things like putting perf sonar nodes around campus uh, made it much easier for us to um, both quantify the improvements and I think led to fundamental uh, changes in the design as we implemented a, a new core. Uh, all of which um, are important around learning from what happens when you when you blow up the network, but also what happens when you um, try to satisfy uh, getting in advance too far of, of the researchers' um, uh, demands. So uh, a simple view of our, our bypass model is that server A wants to talk to server B where some storage is, say he's doing a backup, or that's where the compute is and the storage is, is in some other building. And so today he has to go through the production network to a firewall transition back to the other building's network and down to the storage environment. Uh, we can put in through our SDN infrastructure a bypass that will run at wire speeds that can allow server A to connect to the SDN switch, uh, which then goes through a central hub to another SDN switch in the other building and completely bypasses uh, the, the core infrastructure. There. So there's no uh, latency introduced uh, with that. There's no um, IPS uh, blockage introduced to that. And the SDN controller, we're using a, another public uh, version that we've, we've uh, 
got the source out there called Plexus, which is a Ryu fork uh, based around a number of the pieces of Ryu and um, Victor Orlikowski, who's in that space, has contributed uh, most of that code back to review and as, as released on the Plexus side. But essentially, the, the researcher can go in to switchboard, introduce a request that says, I want server A to be able to talk to server B. The SCN controller puts that in place and says, when I see that traffic, uh, route it over the bypass network. Um, so switchboard does all of the work for those authorization and approvals. It knows who you're allowed to speak for. Um, and then it can push those via REST to the uh, Ryu REST router-based uh, Plexus, and then it pushes those out to the uh, switches through the control plane, and then the data plane uh, allows for all of that connectivity. Uh, we've had uh, some additional work going on for an application called Locutus, which is essentially our sort of version of the um, uh, flow state firewall or other sets of tools to allow multiple SDN controllers to talk to the switches and divide up the spaces there. This is what a switchboard looks like after you've built um, the services. It'll actually give you a view of the networks you have uh, control over, and we provide directed graphs that, that show that there's a path between them. Uh, the prototypes for these were built on mini nets, and it's very nice to be able to see the sort of simple topology that that a researcher expects when they go from point A to point D and they know that they can bypass uh, the other pieces. And the nice thing about it is that you know, initially when we first started looking at SDN, that one of the questions that came up was from a security perspective of how can you allow traffic to flow uninhibited across the network without any type of inspection or understanding. And what Switchboard did when it was designed was to provide us that view. So we, we do get an audit log of who set up the traffic flows, uh, where they were going, and at what times they happened. We also had the ability, and this is built in, to do authorization of authorization. So, you know, as an example, I might put in a flow request saying I would like to build this, this, um, this SDN link between two hosts, and somebody else has to approve it. So, built those safeguards in, in, with that in mind. Um, it, there was a question about the hardware, and, and, and Richard answered that we are a Cisco shop. The SDN gear has more non-Cisco than any place else inside of our network. So we have um, mainly uh, some Arista gear inside of there, and there is a lot of. Um, we've I think we've we've put a lot of effort into improving Cisco's SDN offerings in terms of bug finding, uh, and we'll get a little bit um, more around that later. But we 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 have found a lot of bugs in the Cisco gear, and in, and in some cases, we're expecting a release of new gear for our 4500Xs uh, this week, and then the ASR9Ks that are running in our regional SDN network are due later um, in April. Um, so to walk through a couple of use cases. Did you say it was prototyped? Yeah, it was prototyped in MiniNet, that's right. Yep. Um, and in fact, in the code that you can download from uh, GitHub, uh, I believe that the MiniNet configurations and all the is necessary to do that are, are included in that. Um, so some of our use cases are sort of traditional SDN, or sorry, traditional science DMZ types of, of networks, um, but we've linked in enough of non-public internet sort of things that uh, we're calling this a software-defined science network. So for example, we can leverage AL2 West. 
and today we have a, a VLAN coming in from AL2S uh, for LHC1, and then we have BGP speakers on the edge that pull in all of the necessary routes, and we can connect things up to LHC1 any place we need to on campus by just dropping those onto the right VRF uh, with the right subnets in there. That leverages also our regional SDN, which I mentioned earlier is uh, a bunch of ASRs. So we can link directly to uh, RENC, uh, to NC State, to UNC, to NCREN slash MCNC in the region in the triangle to, to do direct point-to-point uh, -point work or on different VLANs or uh, in broad space. That's an area where we have the control plane running over the public internet through encrypted uh, channels where we actually had to add TLS capabilities to uh, some of the services to make that work. Uh, we can leverage on-campus SDN linkages, so I mentioned that we have some of the Cisco 4500Xs, so in our distribution locations we can have a portion of the switch which is SDN and a portion of the switch is, which is traditional Cisco and then link those two together so we can provide services that way. Uh, and then we can provide uh, less congested 10 gigabit uh, connections to the public internet uh, in the traditional science DMZ sort of fashion, but we can then route them through the campus SDN network to get to whatever location we need to. Um, so we've also had um, services where we want to be able to do data migrations. Um, so the idea here is that we can, uh, as Richard mentioned, we have a audited um, trail for when we put in an SDN rule so we can think about moving data um, through an SDN link uh, and bypassing uh, the inspection so we can get things done quickly and not clog up the, the pipes for the rest of the researchers, which when we were doing things in a pure VPN environment was always a problem uh, for data ingestion or data uh, egress as well. Um, and so, you know, the idea here is that we can migrate encrypted traffic into the network and either move it out or move it in, but under controlled circumstances. Um, and then we can also want to be able to build and deploy, as I mentioned earlier, Docker or Singularity containers through a mechanism, and we can either do that through a firewall or, or port being opened up to a particular host, the build host, or we can think about allowing um, the, the build processes to invoke a uh, an SDN path into the environment, get the data transitioned in, and then turn off that path. Uh, and then as I mentioned, we think of this as our software-defined science network. Um, and I think everybody here knows what a science DMZ is. Um, and the traditional um, looks for those sorts of things when they go into a campus network. Um, and our approach to um, the SDN to SDSN, so a, a software-defined network to a software-defined science network is we want to be able to apply policies, we want to be able to manage data and flows to and from the science DMZ, we want to have our traditional uh, security challenges to be able to say how do we control this, how do we monitor the routes that are created, how do we know what nodes are added, and ability to out audit the, the routes and the flows. And then how do we get started on something like that? Um, sort of from a simplistic view in the past, uh, if a physics host wanted to connect up to the internet or any place really, uh, any host outside of campus, they would go through uh, the campus core, then to the, through the IPS and the firewalls, through the edge gateways, 
through the internet and connect up to that, which was a uh, not very good for high performance flows. Uh, so we added, uh, the first thing we did was add a connection to our uh, SDN hub to, uh, through AL2S, and we could have a bypass network that we could then um, allow connectivity out to the region or to specific end nodes. I think our first uh, proof of concept was done to University of Chicago a few years ago. Uh, and then as we added additional services, we made our internet uh, connectivity to be more general. And so we have a 10 gigabit pipe that just connects to our edge. And then from there, pops over to the, the SDN hub. And we have um, multiple ways to distribute that. We can have it, uh, we have DTN nodes that are in the uh, space, you know, on a berth directly connected or virtually directly connected to uh, the SDN hub. Or we can actually pop it through an SDN bypass link. Uh, down to a host that has connectivity to the storage. Now, if we want to start protecting this, we've introduced Bro sensors in there. Uh, we have some challenges in getting full copies of the flows from the SDN hub when they are non. When the, the Cisco-based um, SDN here does not do a great job of reproducing uh, a full flow, so you have to do things a little bit different. But the Aristas. Uh, are giving us uh, good hopes and preliminary testing gives us um, the ability to feel comfortable with getting good replication of, of, of a stream into the Bro uh, sensors. And then the goal is for Bro to um, talk to switchboard and then introduce rules if it finds out something bad is happening and shut down the flow. What we don't want to do is sort of a whitelisting approach which says, yes, this flow, we've looked at the first bits of this flow and it's fine and then we change the path uh, because that has a great impact on the performance of the, the flows. When it starts slow, it never really gets up to the higher speeds. Uh, and then our, our final production environment here is where we're doing things where we want to allow connectivity on a, uh, to OSG through, through services on campus uh, or provide connectivity uh, to Duke, uh, Duke resources or OSG resources for the research um, computing um, community, so if they want to go up to um, OSG, they have a fast path to, to get there. Or if we want to offer services through OSG, we have a, a VM farm that can be made available to that that doesn't have the same direct impact as sharing those VMs directly with the OSG research community. Um, and then just to show some, some quick data, this is per sonar to a uh, ESNet host in Boston. This is through the Science DMZ, and you can see that we're getting the sort of 9.5 uh, uh, gigabit level. Uh, we have some asymmetry that we're not quite 100% certain about. We think it's upstream uh, in the MCNC-NC REN network, uh, as opposed to our normal production network connectivity, uh, which uh, gets as low as a few hundred um, megabits at certain times. Uh, I don't remember whether this included the um, ACC tournament um, date or not. I think it may have. Uh, but we had our highest utilization of our traditional campus interfaces when, before the students left uh, when Duke was in the uh, ACC tournament um, that a couple of weeks ago. And that's a good point. I mean, when, when you're looking at these two graphs, one of the advantages with um, one of the advantages with running a science DNC is it allows us 
to partition off the research data that's, that's transiting the network, uh, as opposed to fighting with Netflix, basketball games, uh, Twitch. Uh, we were really surprised to see that Twitch TV is, is one of the more popular applications accessed here. Um, that was a few years ago. And so it, it, you know, we, we see such commodity use of the Internet that, that having a clean path for the research data is, is really become necessary. There's a question about storage. Um, yeah, we actually have for the NAS space the ability to do very uh, granular allocation uh, with our uh, Isilon storage to a particular user or group. So it's very fairly straightforward to set up. Um, so just some conclusions about that piece uh, for the science DMZ and the SDSN. Uh, we do want to be able to move large data sets around. We also have another use case right now where there's some uh, NERSC data that needs to be moved in and out, a uh, few hundred terabytes, and it's very nice to be able to have a path that doesn't uh, jam up the rest of the campus network when we need to do that. That's sort of traditional uh, science DMZ work, but in our case, we were able to get it onto the right network um, quite easily uh, and then drop it through to the, the physics department uh, to make that, that piece simple. Uh, and that uh, we're, we're doing this where we don't have to sacrifice security if, if, if that's important uh, without at the same time not making everybody jump through the secure hoops when it's not necessary. And that the interdisciplinary effort across the board between Richard's team, my team on the infrastructure, teams like SSRI uh, and physics and, and other users on campus that we have really good mechanisms to, to get those things done in, in an effective fashion. Um, we have used grants uh, to support this. We had a uh, CCNIE that allowed for or, or funded the uh, deployment of the production SDN network they were talking about, the, the core bypass network. Uh, that also led to the creation of Switchboard. We did a bit of a shootout and found good things about the Cisco switches and bought some of those and good things about the, um, the other switches and, and bought a couple of the Aristas uh, for that. Uh, we had uh, an eager grant that we used to support SDN and um, deploying to our Exogenie uh, project that, uh, again, is part of the broader um, Genie infrastructure that um, Jeff was in, instrumental in as well as Victor. And then we had a, most recently an ACI, CCIE, CCIE uh, grant where we talked about the work to federation, uh, federate uh, services across this. This has also been used in a DIBS uh, proposal where we have provided access to the Office of Personnel Management uh, databases, uh, the longitudinal study of salary, uh, job performance, titles across all of the federal government agencies. We don't actually put the defense agency data out there uh, and are working through models there to allow researchers to uh, collaborate and do some validation. So there's a synthetic version of that data and then access to the real data through um, proxied service and a set of privacy preserving uh, our queries. Um, we're continuing work on research toolkits to provision um, more groups and make it easier for people to group uh, provide the kind of groups that they need so a researcher can add his collaborators at other institutions 
uh, add a graduate student, add an undergraduate who's collaborating with them for a semester. Uh, we're continuing to work on the federated access for our research collaborators. And as I mentioned earlier, MFA, the multi-factor piece, is now more built into the latest version of SHIB. Uh, we're working with the uh, health system to make um, the, their PHI and the environment that they built out similar to how we provision computing resources into our protected network to provide computing resources into their protected environment for, um, for clinical data or any Duke-generated PHI. And then we are doing lots of work and continuing, continuing to do work on um, the security aspects of this. We do lots of logging. We are uh, pushing a lot of data to Splunk where we, we look through, through that with automated queries and, and analysis. Uh, endpoint security has been traditionally a lot of it policy-based and we're doing more with active deployments of, of endpoints on those. Um, and then we're actually putting things like honeypots inside of the protected network to allow us to understand whether somebody's doing port scans. But we also spend a lot of time to make sure that the environment is flexible and usable by the researchers. Yeah, and just on that, on the logging, one, one of the things that's been very important has been this, this back and forth with uh, the IT department to support researchers. And again, you know, pointing back to SSRI, so one of the things that we have to do is think a little bit about how we um, how we do monitoring for data exfiltration leaving the environment without man in the middle in the encrypted protocol. So you know one of the projects that we're doing right now, and this is done out of one of our security lead systems team, is develop a dashboard in Splunk that shows us the flows of data in and out based off the commands that are run on the systems. We're also in the middle of deploying Argus for flow collection, and uh, Argus does have an endpoint solution out, and we plan on making use of that in the same environment so that we can really measure and say, you know what, between a researcher logging in and the VM they've logged into, we are seeing these types of flows um, and then developing what criteria on what is normal versus what is abnormal. So that provides a trigger to us when maybe something um, has left the environment that shouldn't have. And that is, uh, we're at the end, I think, other than some thank you screens. Mm -hmm. um, and are happy to take any further questions via um, the chat window. Yes, and uh, while people are typing, I just went ahead and uh, posted those links in the previous slide in this uh, little uh, box here because it turns them into hyperlinks. So you can, those of you who are interested, can copy and paste them into any um, email or note document you want. Um, so, <laughs> go heels. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, well, uh, I'm not sure we want to answer those questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, for those of you in the audience, if you wouldn't mind, uh, we, we have a survey that we would like you guys to fill out. Um, so please uh, take a moment, if you have time, to uh, give us some feedback, including uh, topics for future talks or offers to present if you are interested in presenting. And um, one more thing, I'll just move this down here so you can see a little bit better. Uh, another thing is um, I just wanted to uh, let people know that we archive our slides and uh, post videos, links to videos on our website. So um, 
If you go to trustedci.org slash webinars, you'll see uh, at the bottom of the page it says past presentations, and you'll see links to slides and videos. Our next webinar is on April 24th at 11 Eastern Time again. And the topic is IT compliance, and our speakers are Susan Ramsey and Anurag Shankar. Um, so be on the lookout for information about registering for that event. And let's see, we've got a couple of questions here. Terrence, uh, Azure and or AWS. So what we've done is we've, we've got the, the model for being able to deploy uh, VMs into Azure. So we aren't using it for protected research at this time, but we are using it to try to cloudburst uh, for some capacity. Um, and we've, we've had some interesting challenges in the, the pipe size that you can get for extensions of the private network into Azure or into AWS for that matter when you want to extend the private networks because we're not doing a direct uh, connect um, uh, that allows us to do the simple sorts of things. So what we end up with is sort of 100 or 200 megabit connections into Azure for the, the private networks. And then uh, we had to do a lot of tuning of the, um, the network uh, bandwidth and quality of service types of things into the, the VMs that we did there. And we found that there was a good, there were certain VM, certain uh, research computing tasks which fit well to that. Uh, and Azure actually has some, some things with RDMA, InfiniBand style connections that make for nice small environments if you need those sorts of things. Uh, um, and we are working now through the process of of deploying Dockerized compute or singularity-based compute into Azure uh, and AWS. We tend to do more that with Azure right now because we have some uh, credits from Microsoft in, in Azure that make it um, more cost-effective to do it. But the Duke website and a number of other services have been deployed in AWS um, as Docker containers, uh, and we have a set of tools around that, another set of automation that we've done around management of Docker containers and other things of that sort out into uh, AWS space. Yeah, and then there was a question on encountering any obstacles in this process. Uh, yeah, sure. We, there, it, it, it's always going to come across that, or you're, you're always going to have obstacles in this. Um, we did have a early on in the, the process with the protected network, we did have a fair number of people involved, probably anywhere from 12 to 15 centrally. And then uh, we had uh, uh, folks on campus that were involved in the, the effort. Um, and that, that's gone down a little bit, but we still, um, I know a couple of our partners from SSRI are on, and they, they, um, they run a, a check-in meeting every month, and then we run a second one, a larger one, every month you know, for the general protected network um, to try to figure out what are the things that need to be developed and for, further implemented or refined. So, and I, and I, I think, think that's important. Well, I think it's also been, there was a lot of questions early on in the process as to whether we would be fast enough to support the, the researchers. Um, and there were concerns that, that when it took, if it took two weeks to get a VM, that that was going to be a, uh, a bad fit for, for researchers. And that was one of the things that led us to, to, you know, in addition to our own sort of internal needs, to be able to spend the effort on Clockworks to reduce the time that it takes to deploy, so we were able to, to provide um, guidance or um, assurances to, to our research customers that, that we could build things um, quickly uh, for the spaces for them. We also spent a lot of effort on the kind of 
network plumbing that we needed to make those things work as well and, and the automation uh, around that. So coming up with those and being able to actually show uh, our research partners that we could, uh, we could collaborate effectively with them has been good. We also did a lot of things in those um, NSF, uh, or the NSF funded activities where actually we have monthly meetings with a number of researchers across campus uh, that we bring in and, and we feed them lunch. Uh, which, I mean, we feed them a nice lunch. Um, and, you know, we get them to participate in those discussions about what's needed, what, what services do we need. The sort of general idea of switchboard came out of some of those, those discussions. Um, some of the things around research collaboration came out of another set of meetings that we have where, you know, when we can have the chance to, to come to the table and meet with the researchers and the departmental staff who are supporting them, we tend to get good things to come out of that. Yeah, and then with Duke's long-term investment in common, um, yes, it was critical because one of the things that, that we learned, I, I would say maybe not so much initially because we were focused so much internally, other than on the concept of net IDs and later on multi-factor, but as we started working with these research communities and the manner that, that Charlie just described, um, we, we saw that there was going to be a need for outside uh, collaboration and it didn't make sense to us to put that back on the researcher to go request affiliate accounts every time they wanted somebody from say a Vanderbilt or Chicago or whatever to to work with them on a data set so I would say yes it was the in common relationship and and uh, internet two efforts were were definitely needed for this to be successful Well, um, anyone have any last-minute questions? I've got some people typing. Um, I just want to thank you guys for presenting this um, topic and thank all of you in the audience who are asking questions. This is wonderful to see people coming together and share these different tools and ideas. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, it looks like... A it looks like everyone is, is, uh, has their questions answered. So um, do, you, uh, are, do you guys have any um, emails that you want to share if anyone has, has any follow-up questions, or is there a, another way to contact you? Yeah, uh, Richard, can, in right now. Richard can put his and my emails in there, and we'll, we're happy to take questions. Okay, great. Well, um, uh, so for those of you uh, who are who are watching, you can use these emails to contact Richard and Charlie. And uh, also, if you want to share this video, I will be sending around a link later today. Um, so uh, there's, a, there's a more opportunities to, to look at this information. OK, well, great. Thank you so much, uh, Charlie and Richard, for presenting. And um, with that, I will stop recording and uh, end the meeting. Thank right. you very much. Thank you. Thanks, guys.